0: Hello and welcome to Science and Sage, a podcast where I focus on creating and claiming space for Indigenous voices in medicine. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Danielle Ben Smith, and we're going to have a conversation about her path to medicine and um, and so much more. So, would you like to uh, introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. It's such a pleasure to be joining you today on this uh, virtual platform. Uh, my name is Danielle Bain-Smith and I'm Echo Dene from Fort Nelson First Nation. My paternal grandparents are George Bain and the late Mary Bain. I'm also French Canadian and Metis from the Red River Valley and my maternal grandparents are the late Elisiane and Jébéon Jumain. I am a mother to two beautiful daughters and in Slavey or Etcho Dene my uh one of my languages my name would be Lucimo uh because I would be named after my eldest daughter and uh professionally I work uh, as the Deputy Provincial Health Officer for Indigenous Health here in BC and I've been in the office of the PHO for the last 5 years and I know we'll get more into mm-hmm very long, winding journey that I've gotten to be, uh, or that I've been on to get to my current role.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to have you here. I actually, I'm not sure if you remember this, and it's totally okay if you don't, but the first time I ever listened to you speak was uh, in Victoria at the um, Summer Indigenous Students um, like Pathway to Medicine workshop. Yes. and. Yeah. And so I got to listen to you tell this, um, or tell parts of your story before. And I just remember feeling so, um, like touched and connected and really, uh, had a renewed sense of kind of vigor towards my undergraduate chem courses. <laughs> so, um, I'm so excited to to have you kind of tell your story again. Um, Maybe we could get started with just letting, maybe letting the listeners know a little bit about what got you into medicine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's great. Thank you so much for reminding me about that first meeting. I think that was up at UVic, right at the Island Medical Program space. And those are, I'm so grateful when James Andrew invites me to those sessions because it's so wonderful and the way it was invigorating and inspiring for you it's at this stage in my career so invigorating and inspiring to see a new crop of Indigenous leaders and health leaders coming up behind us it's just awesome so it's so exciting to meet you now again at this stage in your in your um, journey and so then thinking back, it's, it's also amazing to me when I have these conversations because I go, Oh, yeah, like I'm getting a little long in the tooth. You know, uh, I can kind of um, feel like I'm still very young and early on in my, in my journey, but that's not really the case. So if I think back to the beginning, how this journey started for me, I mean, and I guess you could start this story anywhere, right? I could start it with me. I could start it with my parents, with my grandparents. But I guess I grew up in Winnipeg with my mom and I saw my dad sort of sporadically growing up. And so I didn't grow up on our Echodena territory. I didn't grow up steeped in that side of my traditions. I did grow up in Winnipeg near the Red River Valley, which is the homelands of my mom's people and certainly had, you know, Métis teachings woven throughout, but not necessarily recognized as such. That's one of the funny things that when it's a part of who you are, you don't see it as other or or different. That Mm -hmm. said, I also grew up as a little brown person in a family that Predominantly racialized as white, even though we were Métis. So I would get a lot of questions about what my background was. And in the early 80s, when this, when I was a little kid, um, the language I would use is that I was half Indian. And so for a long time, that was as much as I really reflected on or considered who I was, where I came from, who my people are and and were. And Growing up in Winnipeg, there was just so much visible, very in-your-face disparity, inequity, and racism. And so, as I went through adolescence and got into my undergrad degree, and I actually did an undergrad Bachelor of Arts in International Development Studies at the University of Winnipeg. And that was probably one of the first times that a lot of pieces started coming together for me and learning about less developed countries or poor countries and the impacts of colonization. It was really one of the first times that I thought in those more macro concepts about how structures and systems and colonization had had and continued to have these very real impacts on my personal life. And so through that, I got... Inspired or, um, yeah, just wanting to learn more and really wanting to be a part of making things right. And I think at that stage, so that's in my kind of late teens, early twenties, I didn't have a really clear concept of what that meant, but I just had a sense that I wanted to be a part of a solution or just making things better for Aboriginal peoples, the term that we used at that time, now Indigenous peoples. And so, I started on this very personal journey also of wanting to reconnect with my dad and my dad's family and went back to Fort Nelson for the first time as an adult I was in my late teens and so there was a lot of personal growth and at the same time this idea that I wanted my career to to be in that sort of area and so I thought about these health disparities that I heard about and I could see and so I naively thought that going into medicine would be the best path to to helping to address health disparities for Indigenous peoples and I've since learned so now we're 20-25 years in um, that it's really not the best path to (laughs) to to affect that change I think it's a very great path to potentially have a voice amplified and be able to champion that transformation but I, I now understand that in more complex ways and I can sort of talk about that when I get to the work that I'm doing now but again it, my late teens, early 20s I was kind of uh, you know just just starting to scratch the surface of really understanding my own identity as a Denna, metis person um i got my status card um and that was really interesting to me because somehow that piece of colonial racist embodiment was really meaningful to me somehow that really made me feel like i was um What's the word? Not that I was real, but somehow it made me feel like less of an imposter. And again, that's stuff that I've unpacked over the years with the help of my dad and my aunties and my grandparents to understand that that has no bearing on my identity or my treaty rights or my connection to our ancestors. But at the time, again, being very early into that part of my personal identity exploration, I just remember that being a really significant point in time and then somehow I got into medical school you know I was a good student and and I got into McMaster University and so I went started my journey in medical school and it was it was really quite jarring actually because at the University of Winnipeg that was a time that I was spending a bit more time with getting to know my dad back in DC. So on holidays, I was going to visit with him. I was a part of the First Nations Student Council. So I was spending more time with other First Nations peers, which growing up in, in an area of Winnipeg, you know, that was pretty, yeah, just sort of white middle class. That wasn't an experience that I'd had a lot of. Um, And then I went to medical school. And again, I was in this very homogenous, Um, group of people with no other Indigenous peoples, no other Indigenous supports readily available through the medical school. And it was pretty ironic because McMaster is on the territory of, uh, six nations and it's a huge community. And yet through my training, um, I can count on one hand the number of Indigenous peoples that I saw. And of course, a lot of them would be in through the healthcare setting. So. Anyway, got into medical school and it was overwhelming for sure. I was young, um, pretty naive and really still feeling quite tentative in my own identity and carrying all kinds of imposter syndrome, like on lots of different fronts, for sure. Coming f- with an arts background as opposed to a science background, like there was so many different things. And so I just got into survival mode and I put down all of that personal identity exploration for the most part and just focused on getting through the western medical curriculum content and i did reach out i tried to reach out to one aboriginal physician in the area and was barricaded or blockaded by um that's an interesting choice of words blockaded i was i was blocked by their moa who said that this person didn't work with medical students. And I really tried to make a case for myself. And, you know, I'm an Indigenous medical student. I'm the only Indigenous medical student in my class. I would really, I would really, really like this opportunity, but it was a hard no. And, and so, yeah, so that was discouraging. And, and so I, and that was one of my only attempts to really peek into the world of Indigenous health. And so I just focused on, you know, doing my best, Creating, developing, curating this Western medical toolbox, trying not to hurt people in the process, you know, like all the panic that comes with being a medical student and getting graduated responsibilities. And it was hard. It was it was a really, really hard time. And for residency, I knew that I needed more support and grounding. So I came back to Winnipeg so I could be surrounded by family and friends. And I did the rural family practice program. And in a lot of ways, well, I mean, obviously it was the right choice because that was, that was just what was meant to happen. Um, but it was, in a lot of ways, it was probably one of the hardest choices in the sense that Winnipeg is such a segregated place, certainly at that time as well, 15 or 20 years ago, so much rampant racism throughout the healthcare system. And, and me at that point in my journey, feeling again, that imposter syndrome on a lot of different fronts, feeling ironically very disempowered, even though, you know, I was a physician, a resident physician, um, feeling really, really low down in all those hierarchies and then bearing witness to just really horrific incidents of racism, not really knowing how to process that certainly I didn't have the courage to stand up in the moment and speak out and so carrying that guilt and shame which I carry to this day um and then not only bearing witness but then also ta- at times just being actively involved and implicated so that was extremely draining on so many fronts and Luckily, during my residency, I became aware of the Canadian Aboriginal Leaders in Medicine, COM, which then joined forces with the Native Physicians Association of Canada to form what we now know as IPAC, the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada. But that was, that was such a critical event for me to get me through and yeah, get me over those last hurdles, because it was an opportunity for me to come together. I think sometimes we met twice a year, certainly once a year, with other Indigenous students and residents, which I didn't even really know existed. So at McMaster, I was the only self-identified Indigenous person in my class. And then Karen Hill, who is from Six Nations, was in the, uh, the year behind me. But we just really didn't see very much of each other. And so it was really amazing to meet other physicians that were going through the same struggles that I was. So in addition to going through medicine, which I think is hard for anybody, um also, you know, dealing with the, the challenges of seeing Indigenous peoples being treated so badly and feeling helpless and hopeless and and not only that but also dealing with our own intergenerational traumas and um yeah just i remember sitting with two physicians and at one of the gatherings and just being able to be very free with my story and my family story and sharing um sharing our journey and having no judgment where I can, I also have a very distinct recollection of having a conversation with a med school colleague who I considered a friend. And after sharing a little bit more with this person about some of the members of my family and some of the struggles that they were going through, I just remember them looking at me with this look of horror in their eyes and and they said wow your family has a lot of bad people and it was oh my gosh um, yeah right wow. i can still like i can still remember it so clearly we were driving to kingston for a carns interview so we had this this car ride and you know just talking about things and and really a testament to that person's black and white view of the world like just seeing things you know unable to find or see things in a more complex way. That's where they were at in their journey. But I just remember contrasting that with having this experience with these two other physicians who I consider friends. And not only did they not judge me for the stories that I was sharing, they had stories that were very similar. And so that was, that was such a source of resilience over those years. And I think we all helped to get each other through. And through that whole time, again, I was. St- Feel very naive that I thought, okay, if I can just get through this training piece and get out, and then I can work in community. I don't have to, you know, be a part of any preceptor or other doctor's way of doing things. I can just do things my way, and and it'll be so much better, uh, is what I thought. And then, of course, I got out into practice, and within six months of doing locums, I was just totally done and burnt out because that was For me, the point in time when it really, really sunk in for me that this Western biomedical toolkit, no matter how much effort I put into being proficient, not even mastering it, but just like being okay at it, even if I became a master at it, it was completely ill-equipped to address the suffering in the lives of a lot of indigenous peoples in communities, and so and also might I also say now that it's also completely blind to all of our strengths and resilience. It's not a model that shines light on those areas of strength and resilience, so for that reason, the draining aspect of it was just totally amplified so. Yeah, I was done six months into, into being in on my own. I was totally ready to quit. Um, I had a particularly difficult locum and after that I left and I thought, I- I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. That was my feeling. And so I, yeah, I, <laughs> I remember it so, so clearly. I just, told the creator and I thought I was praying, but I was just being very, very bossy. So I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it necessarily as prayer today, but I told the creator that I was done. I couldn't do this anymore. And I didn't care what was put in front of me, but I would do it as long as it wasn't medicine. And, mm-hmm. um, and I went to sleep. I woke up and then there was this email in my inbox the next morning from this Australian television production company that was looking for a female Aboriginal Canadian physician to be a part of a documentary series about Indigenous healing and Indigenous medicines and Indigenous plant medicines. And so, yeah, and I still remember, too, this part, which I tell all the time, because my first reaction was like, you didn't hear me, creator. (laughs) Like I said, no medicine, you're confused. (laughs) I really, really did have that Dr. God complex, I guess. I was, yeah, it, this was not the right path in my, my opinion. Of course, that only lasted for a few, few seconds or minutes. And then I applied and over a course of months, there was a cu- all these different steps. And I was, yeah, super blessed to be given the opportunity to participate in this documentary series, which was incredibly healing and transformative. And at the same time, a little bit confusing because I had the experience of traveling around the world for eight months and being immersed in indigenous perspectives of healing and wellness. And we traveled all around the world. We started in Fort Nelson and Winnipeg, and then we traveled to Ireland and Wales and Namibia and Sri Lanka and Australia and Aotearoa and Peru and Guatemala and Arizona and Saskatchewan. So we literally went all the way around the world and met these incredible, generous, humble healers. And there were so many threads that were universal. So even though all of those geographies were different, the people were different, their languages, their clothing, their food, their medicines, their ecosystems, very different. There were these universal truths about Wellness and healing and that healing is about being in balance in mind, body and spirit. That it's about gratitude. You know, everywhere I went, there was very elaborate ceremony and rituals that were undertaken when people were harvesting and asking for healing or medicines. That healing is about respect and Humility. So all of the healers I worked with, I'm sure none of them would accept the the label of a healer or title of a healer because they were all very clear that they don't do anything like that. They have no ego in it, you know, that they're just there as conduits for the creator's healing energy. And the respect piece, which this really struck me, having just come out of that very immersive Western biomedical training, this idea that that one, you can't necessarily help everybody. So I what I learned or what I understood is that some people are gifted with certain medicines and healing powers or abilities. and they're not universal, and so when somebody comes and asks for healing that they'll leave a medicine um maybe a tobacco or another offering open to the healer when they're asking for help and describing the kind of help that they're looking for, and then the healer may not be able to do that, so the healer might say that I, that's not something I can do," or they might pass them on to another healer and why I'm sharing that now and and why it really struck me then and continues to strike me today is that in Western medicine, we really are or uh, I shouldn't say that I was my experience in Western medicine was this hidden curriculum of you always needed to know the right thing to do that there was a right thing to do that you should know it, and it was sort of irrespective of what the patient thought they needed and like a real disconnect and yet I was working with all these healers who were saying like oh you can't help somebody who hasn't asked for your help and I thought what are you talking about like when somebody comes in for their appointment and it says you know their hemoglobin A1c is whatever 6.2 I'm gonna help them I'm gonna tell them to eat better and lose weight and you know like just a really different approach so it's
0: sorry to interrupt you but it's so interesting that you say that and bring that up because I just had a recent experience where I was in a clinical scenario and the person who was teaching me um, said something to the effect of, oh, I don't really do that patient-centered stuff. That's why I went to medical school is to tell people what's best for them. And I just remember feeling how conflicting that statement is with my core values and my core belief and so i just can't imagine like you said about how healing of an experience it must have been to just be immersed in that um yeah that respect and honoring the um honoring the practice
1: yes yeah it was it was totally healing and how amazing that you're seeing that in the moment during your training, that you're experiencing that dissonance with your Mm -hmm. core values and core beliefs. I wish that wasn't the case. And I aspire to a day when that's not our experience as Mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples going through Western biomedical training. But how incredible that you felt that and knew what it was. Like I, I just went through so many years of that without even really knowing what was happening, you know, and knowing the ways that I was having all these um that I was compromising parts of myself and making myself fit into a mold that wasn't really for me. And so mm-hmm. that was the part where I found the journey transformative and healing and confusing at the same time because I came back and I'm not a, a healer in that sense of the word like I'm, I don't have those gifts that these people had that shared with me so I really muddled my way along trying to figure out how do I have a family practice and at the same time practice medicine in a way that doesn't go against my core values and core beliefs or that can bring that into encounters and so I was really lucky that where I landed after that documentary was in Dawson City in Yukon and people were really generous there and were really a lot of people were very open to exploring that with me so I invited people to for us to pray together in the clinic room and I was very open to hearing about, for the First Nations in the area, they were using different kinds of medicines. I was really interested in learning about that and working with them if they wanted to incorporate that into, or rather, if they wanted to incorporate biomedical uh, pharmaceuticals into their care plan, working to, to do that in a good way. So that was That was all right, or that was good. That was all right. (laughs) It It was good. It was a nice place to process that. And then I had this opportunity to go to the University of Alberta and join the Department of Family Medicine in an academic family medicine position. And that was sort of like medical school on steroids. Like all of a sudden, I was very much in like medicine is its own subculture of I think, positivist, hierarchical, colonial sort of dynamics. And then academic medicine was even more so. And again, I sort of went in with, I guess, my blinders on. And so that was a really challenging experience because all of these things that I had learned and tried to incorporate into my own life, were completely thrown out the window. So like forget about balance, forget about food as medicine was a huge teaching everywhere. Forget about that, because I was just all of a sudden a part of this rat race and this publish or parish and trying to trying to do good work, certainly, but also a lot of just like trying to navigate the that space in a good way and and feeling once again like an outsider and like I didn't belong and didn't have the credentials, didn't have the I just didn't feel entitled to be in that space. So that created this overdrive in me. And then, and then the universe was like, no, <laughs> like, full stop. And I got super, super sick. I literally overnight, I developed a reactive arthritis, which is like an autoimmune arthritis, um, for, if there are already met students listening to the podcast. It's writer's syndrome, what we used to call it. Can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree. And I diagnosed myself using that mnemonic. So was grateful that I had paid attention that day in rheumatology. And yeah, I was super sick. I was off work for six months. I could only walk very short distances. So my my now husband, my boyfriend at the time, was taking me around in a wheelchair. I lost the vision in my left eye because I had a a corneal reaction. And I was terrified and I was sick. And I didn't know how to get better. So I, at that point, I really... So I was like, okay, I have to figure this out now. I have to figure out how to bring this Western biomedicine to the table. And I need to work with as many practitioners and healers as I can find, because um, I just didn't want to be like that for for the rest of my days. So that's what I did. I worked with all kinds of different healers and practitioners. And one of the things that I thought was so remarkable is my rheumatologist started me on methotrexate. And so I had to give myself these weekly injections and I would get so sick. Like I would take these injections and then I would just like feel nauseous and headachy for, I would do them on Fridays. And so the whole weekend I just felt awful. And then it just dawned on me. I think it was maybe the third or fourth week that I was about to do the injection. And I was like holding this medicine and I was angry. I was mad. I still had all this built up resentment from my my medical school and residency training and and I was angry that I was sick and and I was angry that it was making me sick with all these side effects and it was it felt like getting like smacked in the head and thinking what am I doing like I spent almost a year learning with people who steeped deep deep in me and also just reminded me of our own traditions of being grateful and having a grateful heart and trusting the creator. And so I thought, this is a medicine. Like, why would I treat this any differently than the other medicines that I'm taking? And so that night I held the medicine and I gave thanks to the creator for that medicine. And I asked for all the goodness that it had for me and that I wanted to leave everything else to the side. And I felt fine. I didn't have that same, that same reaction for the remainder of that treatment. And, and that's something that we continue to do in my family when my girls go for vaccines. We do that prayer when I went for my COVID vaccine a few weeks ago. I said the same mantra or prayer. And that's, that was a really such a eye-opening moment for me where I thought wow I really I'm compartmentalizing these these healing traditions and so it starts with me I have to integrate them in myself so I got better and I also through that a friend introduced me to a book called the blood sugar solution written by Dr. Mark Hyman Trust me, I am getting, this is the longest story. I'm realizing right now <laughs> you asked me one question 40 minutes ago and I'm still talking.
0: No, it's lovely. I've had goosebumps yeah. like three different <laughs> times.
1: <laughs> so um there, there is an actual, like, this does eventually come together. Um, so yeah. So my friend recommended this book to me and I picked it up and Mark Hyman, went to the University of Ottawa, but he's American, I understand. So a white guy, a white physician from the States. And was so I started reading this book, and I was like, oh, this this kind of sounds familiar. Like he's talking about health and wellness as balance. He's talking about food as medicine. He's talking about that we have, that we're all innately well. Like that we all in our natural state are balanced and well, but through a series of events or conditions or the way that we're living our lives, we end up becoming deficient in things and maybe we get overwhelmed by other things. And I'm using the term things purposely very vaguely because it's not just about minerals and vitamins and things, um, maybe we're short on love and attachment and healthy relationships. And same thing in the the excess category, what do we have too much of? Sure, we could have too much trans fats or toxins, but we also might have too much stress and intergenerational trauma. And so this was just really mind blowing for me to read this book because I was like, wow, there's this, this white physician from the states who is basing um, and seeing through a conventional biomedical lens these teachings that I received when I traveled around the world from indigenous healers. And so I was really curious and and I learned more about the Institute for Functional Medicine and I began my training shortly after I had gotten better and, and was recovering from my arthritis. And it was amazing because that that food is medicine piece and the things that I learned from that community about how to apply an indigenous teaching of food as medicine into a Western standard American diet landscape was incredible and was a huge piece of me being able to get better and stay better. So I did my training with the Institute for Functional Medicine and began using this model that's very roots cause based, that is focused on hearing somebody's whole story and layering, retelling that story while layering in the most cutting edge Western evidence science that's available And at the same time, keeping in the center of that model, mental, emotional and spiritual, which I still I always highlight that for clients that I'm working with. And I say, so this space to me is sacred. And actually, this model doesn't delve in there like we don't try and pull that apart using a Western positivist, evidence based, randomized control trial lens. But we acknowledge it and we hold space for it and, and I just love that about this model. So we are now for your listeners just to, to give you guys a sense. We're almost there. We're almost at my current role now. Um, so I went out and I was working, um, I had the, the honor of working for Couch and Tribes at St. Wilson Health Center and we were working together to try and increase primary care access directly within the health center and within the community and so through that I said I'm using this or come across this new model I think it has a lot of benefit and is that something that you think community members might be interested in and so they were so supportive and open to me exploring the use of that model in the community so yeah so I together with with the members of Cowichan tribe, we learned together about how to use this model and how the model, as I mentioned, is focused on root causes of imbalance. And it's looking at different nodes of function, physiological functions, which are in the outer circle, and then that mental, emotional, spiritual in the inner circle. And so the different kind of functions, as an example, assimilation, so bringing nutrients in from the outside world, Defense and repair, having a tolerant and effective immune system, being able to create energy at a mitochondrial level, detoxification, so biotransformation and elimination, communication systems. We need to have hormones that signal appropriately between uh, tissues, et cetera. So we focus primarily on those physiological nodes and are asking ourselves, what does somebody need more of? to restore the natural function in those nodes and what do they need less of what's getting in the way. And yeah, I began applying this and it was for one part, I would say is that sitting and having the honor to listen to people's life stories, which also reached back into their parents and grandparents stories as well was really, it was very sacred to be able to sit with people in that way and to be able to retell the story in a way that people felt heard. I think that, that that part of the model is quite therapeutic in and of itself. I think our regular system of healthcare care doesn't have space. And I don't even think it really has the framework to be able to provide a reasonable explanatory model to people in a way that connects not only just their symptoms but connects their symptoms to key life events and that's one of the beautiful things about this model is that when when i'm hearing somebody's story it's a chronology and it's on a timeline and and so things make sense things you know we can we can use some really um wonderful insights that come out of the biomedical scientific tradition to say yeah when you don't have enough iron We can expect that these systems aren't going to work as well. If you're, you know, a lifelong vegetarian, yeah, you might end up with some issues around mitochondrial function because you don't have carnitine coming into the electron transport chain. And these are things that, honestly, as a medical student, I was like, oh my God, please just let me get through whatever like lecture or kind of um, pimping I'm going to get from a preceptor about like, where did this go on the Krebs cycle? Um, but in this model, because it's directly applied, I just, like, I can't even get enough of the electron transport chain and all the things that we need to have in order for it to work effectively. So now I'm on a bit of a, a tangent, but yeah, I got to work with people and retell their stories with the, an explanatory model that, that they could buy into. And therefore there was a trust that was built because I heard their stories. I offered a reasonable theory as to why they were experiencing what they're experiencing, not just saying, Oh, you're, you know, your blood works normal. You're fine. And uh, let's, I, I don't know why your toe is tingly and why your heart flutters and why you have headaches, you know, even though in functional medicine, there's a way to, to put that all together. Anyway. So, um, but then what ha- started happening was as we would go through and, and tell how things had gotten out of balance the flip side of that is that you're at the same time you're uncovering or illuminating or showing the pathway back to balance. Right. So it's like, oh, OK, so if you if you did these things um, and instituted these therapeutic lifestyle changes, we could reasonably assume that you might restore some natural physiological function in these nodes. And then what started happening is we would come up against determinants of health. And we came up against manufactured poverty and the impacts of intergenerational trauma and the impacts of people, people coping with alcohol and substance abuse. And so there were so many things that were just completely outside of people's control that it just started feeling just again, so helpless and hopeless to sit with somebody and listen to their whole story and validate that. Well, I don't know. Validate is not the right word, but listen to somebody's story, bear witness to that, and then offer what I could in terms of what I've learned about bringing in these other um, biomedical approaches. And then somebody just couldn't do it because they didn't have the money. They didn't have the access. They didn't have the transportation. Like they couldn't go and get their own food as medicine. You know, it was, it was pretty heartbreaking. And so, that was, again, I really have carried this naive streak of me throughout. So the position that I'm in now was vacated when my predecessor, Evan Adams, moved over to the First Nations Health Authority to be the inaugural chief medical officer. And so the position in the office of the provincial health officer as deputy PHO Indigenous Health became available. And I really hadn't given it much thought because I... I'm not a Western public health trained physician. It wasn't my career path. And at the same time, I was very motivated to be a part of the transformation that was happening in BC and and seeing this incredible opportunity in FNHA that we could do things in our own way and lift up our own healing traditions. And I really, truly, naively thought that I would be able to just kind of rock up, talk to you know the pho the deputy minister of health just say listen guys groundbreaking news there's this model called functional medicine it really works and it does like anecdotally again because i don't have the 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 robust evidence to say but in my 10 years of practicing regular family medicine i could count on one hand the number of people that actually like got better so not just like their symptoms were kind of better, but people who actually got better from whatever they were faced with. And they completely got better in spite of anything that I offered, I think out of my family medicine toolkit. But now using this model, it's really, it's unusual for me to work with a client who's able to undertake the therapeutic lifestyle changes who doesn't get some measure of improvement. Like it's really, it's that is for sure um, Not the norm. The norm is that people experience some improvement in their vitality and wellness. And so I really thought I'd just show up in government and be like, hey guys, like, let's do this. And it doesn't work that way. I've since learned it's a little bit more complicated and complex. And, and that's where probably about half an hour ago I said, or maybe it was, it was closer to the beginning, I was saying that I naively came into medicine thinking that that would be the most effective way to be a part of improving Indigenous people's health. And now, from where I sit today, I actually believe that the people who have the most influence there are people who are influencing legislation. Uh, It's our leaders who are, are at the table's Demanding that our rights be upheld, that we have the ability to exercise our inherent treaty rights and title, the the people who are fiercely defending our lands and our territories that are the holders of our language, and this really does I think about how many people have worked so hard and so tirelessly because. They understand at this incredibly deep level that in order for us to be healthy and well, we need to be able to be fully ourselves. We need to have our language, our culture, and all of that is tied to our lands and our territories. And so without that, um, we just can't see a bright future. And our language. So, yeah, so I think from where I sit now, I definitely have so much respect and admiration for. Yeah, just the incredible our ancestors, um, the people that are still out there today that are standing up for our rights in really inhospitable spaces, and yeah, I'm, I'm just so grateful to them because I think that is fundamentally where our health and wellness is rooted. And I also think that this is such an exciting time, and I'm so grateful. Although my journey was very windy to get here, I'm so grateful to be here in this time because. There's so many pieces that are aligning right now. There's momentum and we're getting, we've got that legislative backbone now here in BC and the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. And we, none of us know how to implement it or how to do that in a good way or, you know, or what that's going to look like, but it's there now and we're going to use it and we're going to learn how to use it together to, to make some really to build continue to build on the already tremendous meaningful changes that are happening and at the same time it's none of it's happening fast enough and our people continue to um you know to get hurt when they interact with settler systems whether it be healthcare or justice or education so yeah so that's that's my that's been my journey long and windy and i just Continuously learning, and so I am so grateful to the countless number of teachers that I have had along the way, and I continue to have. And I can't even, I mean, certainly in my own family, my parents, my grandparents, but thinking about all of the healers that I worked with during the documentary series, and then how many other elders have come in and touched my life in other ways and just been there to help guide me. My other colleagues in medicine and other fields who've been so supportive. Um, it's just, it's really incredible to see how far we've all come together collectively and, and obviously how far we have to go And that's what makes me so excited to be here today with you, Hannah, because it's like, that's so cool to think that we met up at UVic and now you're here. And who knows what kind of opportunities are going to be out there for you, you know? Because there's so many people that are um, working in different cool, cool ways. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll, I just, I can't even think of anything really to follow that other than thank you for sharing your story and for all of the wonderful teachings that you've offered today. I think when I listen to you, the things that I hear from you know, not just from your recent practice or the recent things that you're doing, um, on a kind of an eagle view level, but just from the very beginning of your story wo- woven through is so much resilience and self-reflection. And, um, I think something that I take from you every time I listen to your story is just the unbelievable, honor that you have for yourself in your path and adjusting when it's not working and or when you're noticing that you're out of balance that's something that I really um love to have the reminder for because another thing that you said and talked about is just um the opportunities that you've created for yourself to process your journey have seems to really just shifted you into into spaces that uh, that make you better able to honor yourself and your teachings and your gifts and so I think that's a wonderful reminder for me and hopefully for for the listeners um to to yeah to be able to create those times to process for ourselves to honor the teachings that we bring into the room and and into medicine and I just find you such a enthralling person to listen to because it's It gives us permission to not be so confined in the, in the Western approaches. It's, it's really hard when all of the people around us and all of the, um, instruction that we get, uh, really inundates us to kind of, to act in a certain physician or doctor way that isn't what, what we know or what we maybe thought of, um, coming into this. So I really just think it'll be so powerful for you know my friends in first year who have gone through their first year of medical school in a pandemic and are learning over Zoom and for my friends in second year who are heading into clerkship and that's a huge life transition for us and learning about what our roles are and how to integrate our indigeneity into this experience and then you know, our fourth years who are matching for karms and feeling like they might not have had any time in the last four years to process what the heck they just went through. So hopefully, they can listen to you and feel feel what I feel when I listen to you, which is grateful and hopeful and um, allowed to be Indigenous in this world. So. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Hannah. That's so nice to hear. And while you were describing that, I think when I think about medical education and where we need to go collectively, I think we've been stuck in this space of trying to increase the number of physicians who are indigenous, and we have not As far as I'm aware, and I've been a little bit out of the medical education sphere now for a few years, but I don't think we've really given any meaningful reflection or consideration on how to train Indigenous physicians in the sense of, and to acknowledge that part of training Indigenous physicians, I'm using air quotes, is creating the space for our own healing traditions and ways of knowing and being to be a part of that curriculum. And so I think of when I was the site director for the Indigenous Family Practice residency site, because I knew the value of that immersive experience in Indigenous healing, anytime I had a resident who said, I want to do an elective in Indigenous healing, I was like, yes, where are you going? Like, yes, do it, go. Um, and, and it was, like, we just, we don't, I think as, med- I'm now calling myself a medical educator, which I'm not. So I think <laughs> I'll remove myself and say, I don't think right now medical educators are really having that paradigm shift of what do, what opportunities do indigenous medical students and residents need in their training program to ensure that they can exit the program as fully embodied Indigenous physicians and Métis physicians, Cree physicians, Anishinaabe physicians, Tanahak physicians, Halkameenam, you know, like get really specific because that's one of the risks too, right, is this pan-Indigeneity, but that's what we need. Like we need more specific nation-based physicians who bring their whole selves to this physician identity. So I think that's the next shift that I hope that we see. And I feel like that when you were just speaking right now, it's like, that's what you guys are doing. Like, you know, you're getting into that space, and you're claiming that space, and it's awkward and uncomfortable. And it's still, at times, very unsafe, right? So that's why we have to have each other's backs. But yeah, if we can kind of shift from that physicians who are indigenous and really think about what does it mean to be an indigenous physician as opposed to a physician who's indigenous? It I think they're two completely different things in my mind now.
0: I agree. Um, maybe I'll just I have <laughs> I'll ask you a question and um this is something that I sent a message to, um, my group of first, second, and third year Indigenous. Actually, I think there's also a few fourth year Indigenous students in our cohort right now. And I asked, okay, do you have any, any questions that I should ask, um, today or anything that you want to know? And, um, maybe, we, maybe we can end on the lovely note of talking about your family and how, um, you manage being a mother in this career and um, and yeah because I think that we have uh, a new mom in our cohort and uh, a lot of us are so family centered as part of our indigeneity and sometimes I think that can be daunting of a task to um, kind of undertake
1: totally yeah so I feel like On this point, I probably have nothing very (laughs) helpful to say because whenever I see medical students and residents who have kids and babies, I'm just like, what, how can you do, I just don't even understand, I can't compute because my experience of medical training is I was like barely keeping my own head above water, let alone like another human being, so I would say that, that said, I do have two young kids through a pandemic working in public health, So. Um, I do have that experience to speak to. And I think ultimately, um, because it is so deeply ingrained, I think, in who we are to care for both our elders, but also our descendants, that it's actually a reminder to me about what really matters. So it helps to keep me grounded, even though it adds this layer of complexity to my daily life. and. So so yeah I think I think that really does give you so much perspective and I guess just to go back to the last comment that I was making about how how are we collectively creating opportunities and space for indigenous peoples to emerge from our training programs as Indigenous, fully embodied Indigenous physicians. And so when I think about my own experience, what that probably would have looked like was having an additional two to four weeks in a year that I could use to spend with my family doing traditional activities, right? That was not it was not vacation, so that's one of the the areas that I get a little bit caught up on is thinking like, oh well, you you should use your kind of vacation time, and I think, well, no, that actually that it's something different than that. Mm-hmm. That's going and working with my family for my family. It's it's a different kind of activity with a different purpose, and so that's where I hope that we'll be able to move with some agility and flexibility, and and not just get hung up on like. Well, what, you're gonna cut out a cardiology unit or you're gonna lose a nephrology week to go moose hunting? Um, but actually like start to reframe and think, well, what's gonna make me a better physician for my First Nations clients? You know, mm-hmm. is like is is me knowing every like last detail about interventional cardiology gonna make a difference if this person doesn't trust me do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it's kind of this trade-off i guess i'm thinking about so and and now of course i've zoomed out from your question to think very broadly about family because it's not just about that nuclear family and your you know the your own offspring and spouse and partners but um but about our broader family and so I, I hope that we will be able to come together and think about like what's possible. Let's not focus on what we can't do, and you know that that the curriculum is already so condensed, and we can't possibly add any other time. And think about okay, well, how can we stretch time out? Like I personally, as when if I think back, I think uh, if I were to look back and I'd give been given the option to do my med school in four years of training instead of three. Um, And But that meant that I would have this time to be grounded a few times a year with my family. For sure, I would have done that, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have been better off for it. So, yeah. So my hat's off to your classmates and your cohort who are doing this. Like, you're my heroes. That's incredible. I I don't know how you do it. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be like phone and auntie if there's anything I can do to help because that's wild. And, and yeah, we, we need to, um, again, I keep on using we, like you guys know what I'm talking about. Of course, you're not in my head, but I think the mainstream settler education systems and systems in general, we really need to figure out how to create more space and be more flexible and be more open to ensuring that Indigenous peoples can come into those spaces in fully embodied ways where we don't have to compromise any part of ourselves to succeed in that track.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um I'm mindful of the time and the time that you have in the day so maybe unless you have anything final that you'd like to add um I will just say cook's gem for everything for your time for honoring this podcast with me today and our experiences and um for being the wonderful health leader that so many of us look up to. So Thank you.
1: Thank you, Musey Cho, Hannah, It's been such a pleasure, and I'm happy to, yeah, come back anytime um, and chat again. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm
0: certain that we could have hours and hours to talk about so many of these things, so I will definitely I'll definitely reach out for us to chat again.